out there operating without any decent restraint, totally beyond the pale of any acceptable human conduct. CPR Street Gang, local law standing by, over. Charging a man with murder in this place was like handing out speeding tickets at the Indy 500. And welcome to Speaking Out America. Uh, my name is JR. It's good to be here with you. Busy, busy, busy day. Friday, heading into the weekend. A lot of activity going on today, including uh, fears of a broad financial contagion spreading throughout much of Friday afternoon after tech leader Silicon Valley Bank set off alarms earlier over liquidity uh, concerns, uh, sparking share losses across the banking sector worth some $52 billion on Thursday. On Friday, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company Corporation said regulators have shut the bank down to protect insured deposits. And it's it's one of these key moments that we look for sometimes or well, we hope that doesn't happen because you don't know what the response is going to be from other banks, other lending institutions. The job reports came out today. They were subpar. It's like 300,000 jobs added uh, in the last month. And then, of course, you know, Biden really kicked off a doozy by announcing his multi-trillion dollar budget package, which uh, incidentally uh, adds up to about uh, 10,000, just under 11,000 per U.S. citizen, which is what it would cost that he's asking for in his budget. Here's Tom Campbell, financial expert, sort of giving us a synopsis of what was happening today on the stock market. I don't think this is actually going to be as bad as the SNL crisis was in the 80s, right? I think this is this isn't industry wide. This is this is one bank that made a bad bet, and I think the problem. I, again, I'm not I'm not a, a an analyst, an equities analyst, but what I do think is that the portfolio isn't. Um, with companies that, that probably have as strong a balance sheets as you would have at a Bank of America, at a J.P. Morgan, at a city, right? And so, so that's really the challenge of another bank coming in to, to take SVB and, and put it under their umbrella. So I, I don't know, but, but to me, that would be the outlier that I would think would, would be hard to, to make happen in that. The real issue, and I think you're right about this, is will it trickle down to the tech companies that don't have strong balance sheets, and if they want to leave SVB, what bank wants them? Yeah, this is where we kind of hope that the CEOs of these large tech companies have some uh, kahunes because they're going to need it. Otherwise, they're going to freak out and do what we don't want them to do, which is crash and burn. Uh, it is interesting to note that uh, today, parent bank SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, had reportedly tapped outside advisors to facilitate a potential sale, but also earlier in the morning, building managers at Silicon Valley Bank's Manhattan branch reportedly called the police after a, a group of tech founders showed up and attempted to pull out their cash. It's not something you see very often. It's, in fact, it's something you hear about in places like Venezuela. SVB shares plunging 60% yesterday after the company's CEO begged investors to stay calm and not panic over liquidity concerns. And uh, so big, big problems today in the stock market reverberating still. Uh, not a good sign. And, you know, investors, financial analysts have been saying this for months, that there was kind of, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, so like the perfect storm in the financial market. You've got 
uh, interest rates that are almost guaranteed to go up two more points. Now you've got inflation worries. Now you've got uh, energy shortage. And man, what is happening in California? Uh, here's a report earlier with Newsmax talking about yet another storm headed your way. Massive storm system from the satellite footage. And it's not only packing rain, but could dump as much as eight feet of snow at high elevations like Lake Tahoe and the entire Sierra Nevada mountain rain. Yosemite National Park saying the park will remain closed through at least March 16th. California was headed toward its fourth consecutive year of a devastating drought. But now, after the series of storms, it appears as though the drought would be eliminated. A live look here at Lake Tahoe, where the snow just keeps on coming. There's yet another wave of up to six feet of snow coming to the Sierra Nevada mountains. Skiers reporting the deepest snow they've ever seen on the slopes. You know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who lives in Ventura County, and everybody in California is frustrated because it is the end of the drought. But but a lot of that rainwater snow melt pack that melts and runs off, it just goes right into the Pacific Ocean never to be seen again. And it's frustrating because uh, many of my friends say, you know, this is where bad leadership has really affected California because the environmentalists have such a stranglehold on any kind of development of dams or reservoirs that would retain this water that comes. And they endured a four-year severe drought. I grew up in California and it seemed like we were always in a drought. It seemed like every 10 years we'd get deluged with one storm. The L.A. River, would, the basin would open up and it would be rain and water and then it would go away. But, you know, these people, they just, they, they're, again, it's bad leadership. Speaking of leadership, I think I want to get into this a little bit. I'm going to play for you uh, DeSantis, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was in Davenport, Iowa earlier And he was giving a speech. Now, I've said for the last week that I don't think that he is going to run. But today, I think I changed my mind because he looked like he was giving a speech today. And it was a story about his life. Now, I know, I know he's out there hawking his book, uh, but he's hawking his book in Iowa. And uh, Iowa is not a hugely populated, densely populated state. Des Moines is its biggest city, and I think it barely reaches maybe a million on a good day. Uh, Anyway, so he's there, and he's had a lot to say, and I want to kind of get your feedback on this, and I've got some ideas, and I want to share as well. But here's a little clip of Ron DeSantis giving what I thought was a very presidential speech today. I think it's a testament to just the recognition that over the last four years, we have seen one of the biggest examples of the American people speaking about policy and about the proper vision for government. And it wasn't necessarily in elections. Yes, Kim wins big, I win big, and that's important. Uh, It was really people voting with their feet because what we've seen is a great American exodus from states governed by leftist politicians imposing leftist ideology and causing their societies to decay to crumble. 
And so people coming, you know, look, we've always had been a place where people would come. I mean, it's accelerated in Florida, but there was a little logic to life. Maybe you work in New York, you time to retire. Okay, better to be in Boca Raton. It's warmer, right, when you get older. And that happened for sure. But when you have people uprooting from California, to come 3,000 miles. So I can tell you, I was born and raised in Florida. I don't ever remember seeing a California license plate. We start seeing all these California license plates, and I'll tell you, a lot of our voters were spooked about seeing these California licenses. Yeah, are they-, they sure were. I, I had several of my friends say, you're not worried about people from California coming in and, and liberalizing? And I said, uh, well, we won't let it happen people going to vote? Are they going to change our state? Well, it turned out that they were voting because of what Florida was doing. So we really served, as you had this exodus, we really served as the promised land. We're the fastest growing state in the country. We've led the nation in net in migration uh, the last four years, and we've had more wealth move into Florida over the last few years than has ever moved into a single state in all of American history over a certain time period. And that is a result of leadership. It's a result of vision. It's a result of standing up for what's right. As Tim mentioned, in 20 2018, I ran in the state that for a decade had been a 1% state. Governor's races, president races, it was a squeaker. You just had to figure out how to get over the hump. So we get in by 32,000 votes out of over 8 million votes cast. We had a half a percentage point margin. And the advice I was getting at the time was, okay, it's a divided state, very close election, trim your sails. Don't rock the boat, you know, just get in there and, and kind, of, kind of be uh, a little passive. And I rejected that advice. Uh, my view was... My view was I may have received 50% of the vote, but I earned 100% of the executive power, and I intend to use that to be able to advance the best interests of the people of Florida and to fulfill my campaign promises. Well, there you go. He's talking about how he's a man of, of accomplishments. And let me tell you something. I am glad. We, we've been very fortunate here in, in the Sunshine State. We've had great representation. Uh, Rick Scott was an excellent uh, governor. And uh, Jeb Bush was an excellent governor. The guy that was not a great governor at all was Charlie Crist. Uh, and uh, and I was relieved. I think if he hadn't run... We might have ended up with him or, or even that other gentleman, uh, Gilliam, Terry Gilliam. If we had had Gilliam during the COVID pandemic, this state would have been just like Michigan. It would have been just like California. It would have been shut down. Uh, the business community would have been destroyed. The tourism community would have been destroyed. We would have been cowering in fear. Our kids would be staying at home, playing video games and getting depressed, just like everywhere else. But it didn't happen here. It didn't happen here because we had a governor who wasn't afraid to push back. And let me tell you something. He got a lot of grief. The media was hounding him. It was it was not very pretty. And the point I, I'm trying to make is he did do a good job. And, 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 and it, when it happens, because it happens so rare, you know, really, it happens so rare in politics that when it does happen, you've really got to celebrate it. So we celebrate Ron DeSantis quite a bit in the Sunshine State. And who knows, maybe the rest of America will join in on that celebration. Time will tell. We'll be right back. Speaking out America. 
Speaking Out America, JR here with you. Don't forget, we have a website, speakingoutamerica.com, where you can read all the latest uh, articles that are way ahead of everybody else on the curve, on the curve of the information superhighway. And it's a pleasure for me to go out and look for those stories that I think have the most relevance and the most meaning to us and are going to have the most impact and effect on our individual lives. Uh, and it's a great quote that I meant to tell you about earlier, but it's, it's the bigger the government gets, the smaller the person gets. And that is so literally true. There is legislation moving about, you're hearing a lot of this about uh, Joe Biden giving American rights over to the World Health Organization. He wants to sign what is being determined as a sort of a treaty, an agreement that will join in with other countries. And of course, you know, the United States is one of the primary funders of the World Health Organization, as is Bill and Melinda Gates. And what it would basically do is give up our sovereign rights during a pandemic or anything that was deemed a global threat. They would basically be able to call for lockdowns, mandates, travel restrictions, and they could call the shots on what and how we move about. And that's dangerous. Handing that over to the World Health Organization would be tantamount to basically giving up our own sovereignty. It's very serious, and it's ridiculous that George, Joe Biden would do this. I mean, what is he thinking? Who is he surrounded with? You know, these globalists think, uh, you know, a friend of mine made a good point the other day. Who pledges allegiance to the United Nations? You know, people are proud of their countries, France, if you're, if you're from France, you're proud to be a Frenchman. You're proud of your country. If you're a German, you're proud to be German. You, you don't ever say, gee, I'm, I sure am glad I'm part of the UN or the EU. Uh, you don't say, I'm proud. I mean, some you can say, I'm proud to be an Iowan or I'm proud to be a Floridian. But at the root of that is you're also proud to be an American. That American pride goes with you wherever you are in the United States. And there are 50 states where you can be a proud American. So it makes no sense to me that the leader of America would sen senselessly give over sovereign rights on our own country to a foreign body that has as one of its members the Communist Chinese Party. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. But you know what? Joe Biden surprises everybody every day, doesn't he? He really does. Uh, leadership. Uh, let's listen more to... De DeSantis, he was in Davenport, Iowa uh, earlier today uh, promoting his book, but also, uh, I think, saying, hey, ladies and gentlemen, here I am. Because as Alexander Hamilton said, energy in the executive is the leading characteristic of good government. So we were mindful of that. I also made a decision. I am not doing polls to tell me what to do. And so I've not looked at a single poll. Since and so he's referring to the CPAC poll probably because that was the poll that came out that said that he was 20, he was number two on the CPAC straw poll last weekend in Baltimore or wherever they had it, Maryland. Trump obviously number one with overwhelming 65%. So I think he, this is sort of his way of acknowledging it without acknowledging it. I've been governor. And the reason is... 
first of all, I can pull this room, get a result, change the wording of the question, and I would get a different result. So a lot of times how you ask question. But second of all, the static analysis of opinion is not what a leader should care about. What a leader will do is not be captive to polls, but to set a vision and shift public opinion and get people to support what you're doing. And that, that was our approach in Florida. We also understood that I could be the best uh, decision maker as an executive in the world, but if I don't have people in the administration who believe in the vision and are going to put the people's business before their own, then none of this stuff ends up getting done. So we made very clear people working in the administration, you know, you're not going to be leaking, you're not going to be doing other things. If you have any other agenda but doing the business of the people of Florida, Pack your bags right now. And we did that. And the one thing I could say, if you talk to Floridians, uh, there's no drama in our administration. There's no palace intrigue. They basically just sit back and say, okay, what's the governor going to do next? And we roll out and we execute and we do, do things and we get things done. And in the process, we beat the left day after day, week after week, month after month, year after but year. You know what else? We also get along. We get along in the state of Florida. I have to say we... we Liberals, it's not like other places where we have a, uh, I'm trying to think, what's our most liberal, probably Miami is the most liberal city, followed by maybe parts of, uh, well, Sarasota. Probably Sarasota is the most progressive city because there they have draconian laws. It reminds me a lot of, uh, well, typical progressives, you know, they there, there you'll find teachers in the classrooms wanting to teach transgenderism to two-year-olds. And uh, they're the ones that usually speak out and they're the heavy environmentalists. And, and a lot of people, Republican and Democrat in the state of Florida, are very much into environmentalism for, for obvious reasons. Because, you know, we want our tourists to continue to come here and it's a beautiful state. But I think one thing that Don, uh, Ron DeSantis does not get credit for is saving people. Uh, the, we have a higher proportion of elderly senior citizens who live in our state. And during the pandemic, when a lot of people weren't sure what was the best approach and Governor DeSantis made some decisions about offering a monoclonal therapy to people who wanted it, even though the CDC was pushing back. And even Biden tried to sidestep DeSantis and he wouldn't let it happen. He said no to mandatory mask mandates because he was ahead of the curve on the, the science of it. And it was proved early on that wearing a mask did nothing to pre prevent the spread of COVID. Uh, he also did not allow for the mandating of vaccinations uh, for people of any age, but particularly young people. He would not allow, uh, if, if a person did not want to get a vaccine and they were 25 years old, they didn't have to. And they couldn't be penalized for doing so because what the science was telling him is we're moving too fast. We need time. It, it's understandable if you're a senior citizen, got some underlying health issues, you run the risk, you do what you think is best. But what he did was he gave the, the, the freedom back to the people, which is not what California did. It's not what New York did. It's not what Michigan did. And even though initially we did have, kind of like Sweden, really, initially there was a higher percentage proportional of vaccine deaths. But again, we have a, an underlying high senior citizen population. But at the end of the day, we were freer 
in Florida. And that made all the difference in the world. We were freer and we were allowed to make our own decisions about what it, what it, we wanted to do and what was best for us. And we had a governor who backed us on that. And that is what is important. So while I would not like to lose DeSantis as governor of our fair state, I do believe that uh, if he were to get the nomination, he would not disappoint. There are people who say, oh, he might be a rhino or he's in cahoots with those who like caviar. And I'm not sure that I've seen any instance. Now, you know, you never say never in politics. People can also change their shades uh, very easily. Politics corrupts. uh, And we know that's true. We've seen it happen before. But thus far, I can tell you that Ron DeSantis has been a pretty upstanding guy and a great leader for our state. Speaking out, America, will continue. I'm JR. By the way, there is a way for you to reach out. I encourage you to ask questions. Send me an email, speakingoutamerica at gmail.com. It's the easiest one to remember. Speakingoutamerica at gmail.com. And I'll answer as quickly and succinctly as I can. We always appreciate this. We're growing. We're on TalkStream Live now, which is a great app you can have on your phone. You can listen to some of the best radio, talk radio. If you're a talk radio junkie like me, or if you like podcasts like me, TalkStreamLive.com. Plus, we want to thank our partners at CRN for carrying Speaking Out America, which is also a podcast on multiple platforms. So we're all over the place and we are growing. And it's hard because those algorithms are pushing back. Uh, that You get flagged. If you're a conservative blogger, you get flagged. Uh, no question about it. You'll, you'll see. I mean, I have done searches on my own website, and I'm like five pages in. And it's, it's by design because they flag certain messages. They still do it. Google, Google is probably one of the biggest offenders, in my opinion. They have yet to be held accountable for their involvement in the 2016 election and the 2020 election. Uh, and, and speaking of being held accountable, this was a, the week that should have been screaming headlines that said they lied, they lied, they lied. But uh, the press, in all of its glory, decided to avoid some of the information that came out this week during the Senate subcommittee hearings on COVID and its origins. But still, going back to Rand Paul and that interchange that he had with Anthony Fauci during the pandemic, and it was uh, it was just it was vindicating on on one hand, but it was also just you could tell that there was great deception going on even then. And Fauci was covering it up. Do you think it's a great success what's happened what? so far? Do you think you, the lockdowns are good for our kids? Do you think we slowed down the death rate? More people have died now under President Biden than did under President Trump. You are the one responsible. You are the architect. You are the lead architect for the response from the government. And now 800,000 people have died. Right. Do you think it's a uh, winning success what you've advocated for government? Um, Senator, first of all, if you look at everything that I said, you accuse me of in a monolithic way telling people what they need to do. Everything that I've said has been in support of the CDC guidelines. Okay, well, that doesn't mean much these days. Uh, This man who spoke, this is the thing that has yet to be 
reconciled and will be reconciled, in my opinion. Dr. Fauci, Dr. Collins, Peter Daszak over at Eco Alliance, perhaps even the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, all have to be held account to the fact that under their watch and because of their decisions, they were directly responsible for preventing the deaths of well over 600,000 people, in my humble opinion. And remember, this man was besmirched by uh, Dr. Fauci and his medical license was even threatened to be pulled because he was promoting non-vaccine therapy that could have saved lives were it not for the efforts of Fauci to downplay and to work with big tech in suppressing the fact that we had therapies available that could have saved lives. Listen to this. And ivermectin as the oral drug probably has the best efficacy of the three. Uh, and I think molopiravir is going to be similar to pefipiravir. Um, we will have to see. But the point I'm making is that, listen, the monoclonal antibodies were before the vaccines. They're emergency use authorized. Yeah. They're more impressive results. You, you know, there's nothing to suggest that the, that the vaccines uh, can have anywhere near the treatment effect because so many people who take the vaccines don't get COVID. They never get COVID. What does the VA data show you? 96% of people who take the vaccines never get COVID. So the vaccines are given to a large number of people who are never going to come in contact with the, with the vaccine. Remember the registration well, trials? Why would you say never? They just haven't. I mean, we're relatively new in this thing, right? Well, the CDC tells us 146 million people have already had it. Right. Have already had it. Now, those data run in arrears. We could be closer to 200 million people who have already had it. Do you think there's any reason for someone who's already had COVID to get vaccinated? No, there's, there's three studies well characterizing and three more that have weighed in and preprint showing harm. So we've already covered the fact that recovered people don't get COVID a second time. And even if you argue that you think you can find a case here and there, boy, it's one in seven billion people who can get COVID a second time. It's rare as hen's teeth if it even happens. So the point is, if you can't get it a second time, you can only be exposed to harms. So the vaccines, like any other medical treatment, are not free of adverse effects. And that, by the way, is verified and proven. Uh, 1-800-people-who-get-a-vaccine have some sort of adverse effect. But, you know, it's not atypical to have an effect when you have a vaccine. Some people just don't react well, but this was all kept brushed under the rug. And this is what uh, I think ended and resulted in so many people needlessly dying because they weren't being told the truth. The doctor-patient relationship had been destroyed. And it was in part because of people like Fauci. And who knows what the real motivation is, whether it's money, whether it's power, maybe it's a combination of all, all three uh, we'll probably never know. That's that's the sad part. But still, you know, I hold my my uh, hand up for vindication. I think at some point Fauci will be uh, indicted, or at least he will be shamed. He will shame. He'll be shamed into non-existence once we realize that he was involved in things that we don't know yet for sure, but we suspect he was involved with. Not to mention among the chief of them, gain of function. You know, did they weaponize a virus? Uh, and that to me is just, that's science gone mad. Truly. So anyway, it's Friday. And this was a nugget that I pulled out of a sound clip. Uh, and it has to do with white privilege. There's been a lot of talk about so-called white privilege being taught to our children, making our children feel guilty because of the color of their skin. And this uh, Southern Oregon College, I think, 
in, I believe it's Ashland. But anyway, this teacher, and by the way, Oregon is a very liberal state, especially their colleges. And this teacher posed a, a very interesting position to his classroom about white privilege. And, and I, I thought I'd share this with you. When I hear a lot of black and brown people talk about white privilege, what I'm actually hearing them say, not just that all white people have privilege. I mean, sometimes people say that. And sometimes I roll my eyes at that. I'm like, the people that are going to clean this room, for example, and they're not getting paid a lot of money. I, I, I would be hard pressed to ask some of those of you who are black and brown to come in here and just wait in the room when they come, when they show up to clean. And, and then they clean the bathrooms and so on and, and explain to them how it is that they have privilege compared to you. Those of you who are driving, you know, like really nice cars and I mean, all sorts of things, right? Well, it's a lie. It's promulgated by the left. It's a way of dividing people into haves and have nots and make people angry at each other. See what that guy has that you don't have. And it's tragic. If you ever see the movie Hotel Rwanda, what you'll see is exactly this. You've got a current administration that is in demonizing those who are against them ideologically. And they call them things like maggots, cockroaches. These are, these are the terms of the tyrants. And you see it all the time. And every time I see Joe Biden on stage and he mentions MAGA Republicans, I, I know what he wants to say. What he wants to say is maggots, cockroaches, deplorables. And you use this verbiage and over time, what it starts to do is it starts to weigh down and you start, and they did this in the thirties when they started in, in, in increasing laws uh, that would exclude people that weren't pure German. Only here it's uh, uh, ideological purity. And that's what it's about. It's ideological purity. It's a little different and it has a different form to it, but the outcome is the same which is that you demonize a certain group of people over time, whether they're white, whether they're Christian, whether they're patriotic, whatever it is, whatever it is, if you demonize them enough, then you can start to get laws passed that are supposedly in the name of diversity, inclusion, and equity. But when the exact opposite is true. Speaking out, America, JR, we will continue. What is 3.6 trillion divided by 330 million? 3.6 times 10 to the 12th power divided by 330 million is approximately 10,909.0909. So now we know what it is going to cost every single American next year just to live here in the United States. It will cost us roughly $11,000 a year, which means that it's about 900 a month, $888 a month. That's how much it costs you and me to have a government 
in the United States for a year. That's just one year. And that doesn't include the other taxes that we pay separate. This is just the budget that President Joe Biden has unveiled, a three point, what is it, nine trillion dollar, no, 6.9. Did I do that right? I think I got it wrong. Well, either way, it's still a thousand dollars a month out of yours in my pocket, whether we're taxpayers or not, just to have this government. So the question becomes, are you getting your money's worth? Do you feel that the government is doing a really good job at running things in America? Do you think that you're getting your money's worth in your public education? Are you getting your money's worth in energy, making sure that energy is available? Do you feel protected by your law enforcement? If you uh, go to jail or you get arrested for something and you need a lawyer and one is appointed to you uh, by the government, do you, uh, do you need that service? Well, you might. Uh, did the government do a good job at taking care of us during the pandemic? What, what was that cost? Boy, that, I bet you that was an expensive one. See, these are all the questions that I ask when I think about the the budget, because this is Joe Biden. Well, I think, you know, who said it really well was uh, Greg Gutfeld. Let's see if we can get him in here for a second. He did a about a minute speech yesterday on the five, and it was actually quite insightful. Uh, not that that's, you know, something you wouldn't expect from Greg Gutfeld, but it, it, it actually had such a ring of truth to it that I... I decided I wanted to bring it on the show. So here's Greg talking about the budget. In terms of the budget, I think we have to stop calling it a budget, right? It's identifying as a budget, but in terms of the budget, I think we have to stop calling it a budget, right? It's identifying as a budget, but when you get its clothes off, it's not, okay? It's, and it can't what be, is it? it? It cannot be considered. It's a boat without a bottom. It's technically not a boat if there's no bottom and there is no bottom to the budget. How can there be an achievement? How can you boast about getting a budget together when there are no restrictions to what you budget? When you haven't allotted, when you haven't said, okay, we have this sum of money and these are the things we want to pay for, which is what every person does at home. We just can't print money. Yeah, we just can't print money. And then, and so it's amazing. It's just amazing to me that we pretend that this is an achievement. Oh, look at this. Look, look at the job we did. No, you didn't do anything. You just went through and picked all the stuff you wanted. And then you come up with a number with these like these numerological chemists that are coming up with this stuff. But they just you know, this is not a budget. There's no sum of money that you then allocate to different purposes. So it's not a skill either to come up with this. It's all a joke. And the worst thing about it is when you see people pretend like it is an achievement, when all they're doing is putting a gun to the taxpayer's you know, head, basically. I mean, it's a figuratively, but if you don't pay your taxes, you go to jail. They take our money and then they give it to the constituents like they're Santa Claus, and they act like they did it. It's worse than joke stealing. They're basically <laughs> stealing, they're stealing people's hard work and they're pretending, pretending that it's coming from them. And that is called theft, by the way. Uh, you know, look, we all know that the government largesse is, is just continues to expand. And we also know that the larger that the government becomes, the smaller the individual becomes. We know that for a fact. 
Uh, and this is the Joe Biden presidency, uh, just like it was the Jimmy Carter presidency. And there are fewer and fewer jobs and there are less and less people making more and more money. But at the very top, the people that are producing over $400,000 a year, they are going to get hit because they are going to be paying more. And that little sliver of people who make $400,000 or more is less than 10%. I think it's even less than that. Uh, and so the people on the bottom are not as impacted, but it does make create a hardship for them because they're not getting as many services or they're waiting longer to get those services. Uh, they might get a minuscule amount of increase on, say, their SSI, but it's not going to make up the, uh, you know, the difference in the way that everything else has gone up in price. For example, eggs or bread or milk or getting to the, you know, public transportation sometimes uh, go, goes up because it has to pay more for energy. And that just gets passed along to you. In many ways, the gas tax or fuel in general is a reflection of the government's ability to get you delivered cheap energy. And the U.S. added, by the way, today 300,000 jobs, 311,000 jobs that were created uh, since last month. So, uh, Also, the big news in Europe, because we have to keep track on this, Ukraine and Bakhmut, it looks like it's going to go to Russia. It is a strategic geographical area where there's a lot of trading that goes through. There's a lot of roads that are traveled through that region. And it also gives Putin a more strategic stronghold on that eastern region that he is looking to recapture uh, based on what he said, the Donbass or the Donbass region, Donetsk, and there's a couple of other cities there. Uh, and that continues... Uh, I have said that, you know, this is going to force NATO to take a position on how much more it wants to be involved. It's it's clearly not enough just to arm the Ukrainians so that they're able to push back Russia. But Russia uh, has unlimited resources. They have the money to do it. They have the the bodies to do it. And, uh, and, and again, you know, we're trying to help out Ukraine as best we can. For sure, but short of actually flying those those airplanes and driving those tanks, we have to train these people to do it. Otherwise, they'll just be ineffective on the battlefield. Uh, and so, I have asserted that now is the time when NATO has to make a decision. And when I say NATO, I mean America as well, because we're the main figure here. If we if we retreat, then we're handing a victory over to. Russia, and it might be enough of a, it might be their Gettysburg. Because at this point, if Putin gets this far advanced and we don't want to upstep our involvement in this, then we will have to negotiate some kind of treaty. There was an interesting interchange last week with Andrea Mitchell. She was uh, getting a report from a correspondent who was in Crimea and Basically, it was at about the time that Zelensky was saying that he wants to recapture Crimea as well. Basically, it said it's not going to happen. That was the report. It was honest reporting from uh, MSNBC, which was unusual. And the reporter laid out the facts as to why it's not likely that we're going to be able to recapture 
Crimea. And then immediately after that, the State Department and the DOD had come out saying, essentially, we're not going to be able to back you up. Crimea, scratch that off your, your list of, of things you want, your bucket list, Zelensky. And here is that report. President Zelensky vowed on Sunday to take back Crimea. How realistic is that? The people there whom you spoke to view themselves as Russian. That's right. From those people that we spoke to, it seemed unrealistic. And Andrew, I want to show you some new picture that we filmed yesterday at the port of Sevastopol. Now, this is the closest that any U.S. news crew has got to the Russian Black Sea fleet in many, many years. What you're seeing here are President Putin's ships at that port. Why it's important is because Vladimir Putin will be determined to defend, to defend that port, to not have it taken away from him. He may well do pretty much anything to try to achieve that. And, and the reason why is because it is so strategically important to Russia. But here's the irony. Uh, the fact, since he launched that uh, invasion a year ago in Ukraine, the Ukrainians now will be determined not to have the Black Sea Fleet there, potentially threatening their uh, coast for years to come. So it is a very, very dangerous standoff that suggests that this could pan out for some time to come. It's hard to see how how you reach a negotiation over that. And there in Sevastopol, Andrew, I've got to tell you, I mean, there was just military everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Uh, it is a military town. So again, when, for example, Victoria, Victoria Newland talks about, at the very least, we want Crimea to be demilitarized, I found myself standing there and wondering, how on earth does that happen? You know, Victoria Newland, she's, she, now remember, her husband was the one who prompted the United States and Colin Powell and George Bush into going in and taking out Saddam Hussein after 9-11. So just make that connection. Victoria Newland has been in our State Department for a long time, and she is known as, well, I, I think Roger Waters properly uh, designated her as a provocateur. You know, the this is where American hegemony sticks its nose in and meddles in foreign affairs and, and creates uprisings that take out people that we don't want to be running that country. And that for me as a, as a citizen, I'm, I'm no less culpable and guilty than George Soros when he is affecting policy in our country with his money and his influence. And that's why these people disgust me because they're over there doing things in our name that, that really perturb me, to say the least. Listen, this is going to do it for the show. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. And don't forget to check out the Oscars. That should be interesting. Have a good weekend. Thank you for joining us on Speaking Out America.